0: Welcome
1: to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast
0: series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. It is my great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week, writer and journalist Sunny Singh. Sunny was born in Varanasi, India, and went on to study in India, the USA, and Spain. Her first book, published in the year 2000, was the prize-winning Nanny's Book of Suicides. She has since gone on to release two other novels, as well as works of non-fiction, and her short stories have been published by the likes of Drawbridge and World Literature Today. In 2016, she co-founded the Jalal Prize for Book of the Year by a writer of colour, which seeks to champion the work of British and British resident Black, Asian and minority ethnic writers. The Jalap Prize holds a special place in our hearts here at Mostly Books, as for two years in a row, we've been proud to call ourselves a Jalit Prize champion. Sunny Singh, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. So I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood, Sunny. So you grew up in India. What was life like for you?
1: Well, you know, it's quite funny because often, as I was growing up, or rather, early years of being a writer, I used to have to explain that I had a fairly idyllic childhood, which is not something you're supposed to say when you're when you're trying to start off as a writer. It's got to be something a little bit more interesting. (laughs) Um, My father worked for the Indian government and uh, lived across multiple places, but mostly along the border areas, which. In military cantonment areas, but that meant that we were constantly traveling around. But most of the time, once I started school, I stayed in my grandmother's house, which was in Varanasi, also where I'm born. And it was this rambly old house. Most of my uncles and aunts were either at school or at university. They had friends who would constantly be in the house. Oh. Um, often we would be sitting down for you know way more people for lunches and dinners than actually lived in the house we had people who would stay over friends of theirs but also relatives so it was it was a really interesting great place to grow up also because there were so many people who were studying the house was full of Mm -hmm. books and not just one kind one of my uncles was studying uh, medicine so there were all the great anatomy books which we weren't supposed to look at but because they were, two, <laughs> you know, his study books, but we'd sneak out and, you know, go in and check and go, wow, that's what my the, book, you know, you know, those are the things that happen to the human body, you know. Another one of my uncles collected comic books, so we would sneak into his room and kind of steal those, and um, you know, while he was away. At school or university. So it was really great because it was, you know, a garden, lots of books, lots of really interesting people with interesting conversations. I think, you know, as a writer, it was a dream. But also, just as a child, I think it was a dream to grow up like that.
0: I was just about to say, it sounds like a wonderfully stimulating and, you know, lively place to be with all of these people with these different experiences and interests coming in out and all of you know such a variety of books, as you're saying, medicine books, the comics. within that, are there particular books that stand out that you remember reading at that time that have stayed with you to today?
1: So this was the 1970s. the Cold War was on. Also mm. India was deeply impoverished after nearly 200 years of colonial depredation. Mm. Uh, but what was interesting at this point and it, it's a corollary of the Cold War, that a lot of Western books were really expensive and not available. So okay. we had a lot of books in Hindi, but those often were some things that we got to when I was a bit older. But the okay. most popular and easily available form of children's books were actually from the Soviet Union.
0: Oh okay, yeah. And
1: they were these really beautifully illustrated, stunning, magical fairy tales and folk tales and and then as we got older there was this whole proliferation of soviet children's books so there were quite a few that i loved and kept went back to there was this one account of the moscow zoo and the baby animal section during the second world war and it was written by one of the zookeepers who ended up having to bring these little babies home often because oh. the, the the zoo was you know, being bombed and so there were all these these interesting interesting stories but the one for me that stays with me and continues to stay with me was a book that's the title is roughly translated as three fat men and it's a book about a bunch of misfits who bring down a terribly oppressive regime it's a, it's a novel written in 1924 so very early oh, days okay. of the soviet revolution by yuri olesha and the three fat men are these kind of symbolic figures who just kind of suck up everything from the population so it's actually quite funny that my first book that I loved and I remember really well is all about the revolution and bringing down the regime. Um, Yes. Yeah. But it's great. It has a circus performer, a doctor, a little girl who's an orphan and they all get together and lead a revolution, which worked.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And what strikes me from a bookseller point of view of you talking about this book of misfits that sort of, you know, start a revolution is I feel like particularly in a lot of um younger people's fiction these days you know YA and stuff that sort of a group of people bring down a repressive regime is quite a theme that comes up quite a lot which um suggests that that message still holds a great power particularly now
1: oh definitely i think there is there is something really resonant and empowering about reading a story that involves children who are you know in many ways structurally but also just physically emotionally in every way, materially quite powerless to be told in a story that they can make changes. I think it, it's a hugely powerful
0: thing. Mm, absolutely. And
1: I know that it, it mattered hugely to me because I could then take that alongside all the other messages I got from family and, and, you know, all the politics that was being discussed and talked about of just going, oh, we can change things. And you you don't have to wait till you grow up.
0: Yes, you can engage in such conversations from a, from a young age. Yes, it's an incredibly empowering message. So that one stayed with you. And how old would you have been when you read that one?
1: I think it was read out loud to me by one of my uncles by the time I was about five or six. I probably read it all by myself, around about eight, nine. So around that kind of early age, And of course, there was a really strange process because, you know, books also often stay with us because of when and where we read them. And I remember, you know, having it read out to me and being a little bit afraid. And then in 1975, India declared emergency. So it was a period when all civil rights were suspended. So it was, it was effectively had gone into a dictatorship. And suddenly that book became really important because it said what was going on. It explained what was going on and all the things that were happening in the house with students, union leaders who were in hiding. And, you know, there were all these things that were happening. And the house, my, my grandmother's house was, at, you know, in, in the centre of this. And a lot of things that adults won't explain and talk about the book started to make sense of
0: it to me. Were you always an avid reader from having books read to you from that point? Did you read a lot or was reading just, you know, a small part of your life then?
1: I used to think that kids just are readers and others are not, because I think that's the kind of message that we get. As we were growing up, so, you know, there's always the kids in class and school who are just great readers and the other ones aren't. And increasingly, I realized that every kid can be a reader and an avid reader if they have been raised for it and that has been nurtured. Now, it doesn't mean they all have to read only stories or only fiction or you know, any kind of reading and storytelling can be nurtured. So for me, I think... I was an avid reader, but pretty much I think everyone in the house was. Everyone in my family remains avid readers. I've been watching my nephews and nieces and younger cousins, and and I realized how much it matters to have children not only have books around them, but to see adults just reading and talking and thinking about books. So for me, I think, again, it's about fortune of birth, of being born and raised in a situation where I was surrounded by books. One of the things that I read some years ago is how very, very few children in Britain have access to books in their homes. Um, And that is shocking, not only because... This is a developed global north country. This is a rich country to have children growing up without access to books. And now it's been made worse because libraries are shutting down and school libraries don't have uh, funding. It's appalling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with current inflation and price rises and, you know, cost of living, unfortunately, it's only going to get worse. And as someone who grew up in a house that didn't really have many books, and I was was quite dyslexic, well, I'm still dyslexic now, but um, I was sort of more aware of it when I was younger. I sort of remember that I was told I should be a reader, you know, that being a reader is a good thing, but didn't really get into books until I was much older. And now, particularly working in a bookshop, I can see, you know, how Every child not necessarily has the desire to read, but that's because maybe they haven't been allowed to realise that, you know, there are books out there for them. And once you sort of key into that, it's like a door's opened and suddenly they can't get enough of reading and books. And yes, it's terrible that in a country as wealthy as the UK, that that's not something that um, every child has access to. It's immoral. Mm. It's completely immoral.
1: And it's a choice being made, policy choice, schooling choice, economic choice to stop that. And, and it just shocks me.
0: And has there been a period in your life where you felt that, I don't know, your sort of access to books or information has been denied or narrowed down to a point that makes it quite difficult?
1: I mean, I have to say, I mean, I think I've got a fairly standard path of reading and writing. I love yep. libraries. I think one of the most extraordinary things for me is to be able to go to any country and just go to the local library. Yes. And not really, you know, obviously not through the process of borrowing books, but just the ability to walk in and find a spot and just sit and read and look through the stacks and see what's there. For me, that has always been something I have done. And also why I think libraries are so, so crucial. And I know that we're living through this time where people in power seem to not think very highly of libraries. But these are not just reading and writing spaces. These are community spaces. These are are equalizing spaces. And when we lose that, I think we lose much more than just books. We, you know, and I say just books in very big quotes, yeah. <laughs> um, not because that's something I obviously think, but we lose communities. Yes. And I think we need to really think about how that's going to impact all of us. And that is impacting all of us.
0: Absolutely. You know, we do a lot of work with the local library and it's just a fantastic place, you know, beyond the books as well, as you said. It offers so many resources and um, it's shelter of a kind as well. It feels like when you're sort of passing through the doors, you're in a sort of a cocoon. I think for any community to lose that space, you know, a space of education, but of also help in terms of people use it for printing and things like that, you know, access to computers, the Internet, which is the key part probably of of all of our lives now. I think for any community to lose that is a crying shame. And um, it's funny because people will assume as a bookshop, I think, you know, we'll think that we've got this sort of cold hearted kind of um, commercial view of, oh, no, you know, bookshops are the ones that, you know, the places people should go. But not at all, because um, I think they did a study once and I think it was that towns with libraries tend to have a higher rate of also purchasing books as well. Of course. So we fully understand that it's part of a, an ecology, and that, you know, without one, the other doesn't survive. So fast forward to today, you live in London, what is life like for the Sunny Singh of today?
1: Well, you know, Sunny Singh of today lives in London, but We are still in the middle or or towards the tail end or however you want to call it a pandemic. So I live north of the city. I mostly have a very similar home situation in terms of the, you know, to the one I had growing up, which means there's an enormous amount of books. You know, if you saw my office, you would laugh because they're just stacks and piles. I've I've given up on trying to shelf, you know, use shelves and stuff. They're just going to be in piles. There is an order, which I understand and nobody else. So my family knows not to move things around. There are also books just kind of everywhere and in every room. So there aren't distinctions of where they should or can sit. If there's space, there will be books. So, yeah, I mean, that's really been an interesting process for me. I think the pandemic just kind of made it more extreme because we were working from home. So I had to go in to my office at the university where I work and rescue some of my books. And now I'm in the process of slowly taking books out. So it's really terrible. Um, I'm an academic with my day job. And I think the biggest perk I have of being an academic is an office at work which is basically another place to put books. So, yeah, uh Sunday thing of today probably spent a lot of time just hiding out and reading.
0: So out of that stack of books um, that you have, is there a book that you read recently that stands out for you?
1: So, one of the things I do is
0: I read everything that's submitted for the Jalap Prize. Yeah.
1: So that is one of the privileges of being the administrator for that, yep. where I can just go through it. Um, so from that, there is curiously a book that did not make the long list, but it is one of the most extraordinary books. It is quite dense, and I can understand why it didn't make the long list, but it's the one that I think has been completely, for me, the most extraordinary book, and it's by... A scholar and writer named Gulen Kinwani. I think she's Congolese French, and the book is called Living Wild Black, and it's around the the intersection of racism as structural, interpersonal, lived out at a daily space, but also yeah. it does something really interesting where it picks up and thinks uh, these ideas constructs an entire worldview around it and a very, very rigorous theoretical framework and then says, how do we live in this and how do we deal with this on a daily basis? What are the ways we can care for ourselves when the world around us is so utterly difficult because of issues, you know, of racism and race? And so I think, to me, that has been the single most extraordinary book from that reading. I've done this here. I also do an enormous amount of reading. I'm I'm at the starting point of a potentially, and what will be, a new, very sprawling novel set in 19th century India. So I'm in the process of doing a lot of reading for that. And so my second choice would be a book by an Indian writer named Sabha Diwan. And the book is called Tawaif Nama, and it constructs a whole history of the period but also a legacy of a family that's been long involved and the family is from my hometown from Varanasi and it's a family of courtesans so it's been really interesting to suddenly see my city my family my region all of my community in a completely different light, yes. to suddenly get an insight where you had not had any idea. And it is really strange.
0: Yeah, and to see that from that perspective.
1: Yes. They were courtesans and pre-British India, there was a public role for women with a lot of power uh, politically, economically and so on. That was steadily degraded through the colonial period and obviously the independence period. But it's fascinating. And there are all these incredible intersections with politics and social developments and and attitudes. And so, yeah, I'm completely fascinated. And it's also about places that I have walked through and been to and never realised that there is another story or history to them. And that's just incredible.
0: I imagine a big job with this research and with writing this book you must be coming across so many sort of interesting things, perspectives, experiences in your research. I suppose that there's a temptation to sort of use it all. And I imagine a big job will be sort of pulling back and selecting the bits of research that will most benefit the book.
1: Yeah, you know, I think this novel idea, I've probably come back and forth to for the last 20 something years, if not more. Right. And I think I'm now able to make those choices in a much more logical way. Yes. So I'm hoping I can do that. I can. I can, no, and not just do completely all about writing.
0: And of course, you know, you're mentioning that you read all the books for the Jalek Prize. So obviously, that brings us to, you know, you were one of the founders of the Jalek Prize, and, um, you know, I'd love to know where did that come from and how did that begin.
1: Gosh, I think it was growing. I mean, we announced the prize in 2016, but I think I had been looking at it for a few years before that, primarily because it was very clear that the publishing industry wasn't working the way it should. And the reason I say that is, um, now this is my little soundbite, if you want to call it that way, <laughs> um, you know, a lack of diversity is morally abhorrent. It's socially and politically feckless and stupid, but it is also commercially damaging and self-harming. So here is an industry that is ignoring vast parts of a potential market. And so one of the things that Jellock Prize does is it works in ways and thinking, and our principles are foundationally intersectional. So, yes, it's for writers of color, but we also understand that, you know, there are class issues, there are disability issues, sexuality issues, gender, and all of this intersects on one aspect, which is around race. But that also means that it doesn't stop us from thinking about all the other ways that all these potential people are being left out. And there are certain things to think about there's the money factor. You know, I know we're not supposed to talk about that. But, you know, the publishing industry, by not tapping into this market fully, not maximizing this market uh, or potential markets, is losing out on just pure economic financials. But there's another side. You know, books, unlike, let's say, Shampoo, are about narratives that we agree on, we disagree on, narratives that describe us. Yes. And they... Allow us to become who we are. Narratives can also exclude to have a country, to have a country that is so diverse. One out of every three children right now in schools is from an ethnic minority. Right. If those kids are being told that you don't belong in our stories, what will they grow up feeling and thinking? Yes. And we could do the same exact analysis on sexuality, on disability, on class. A country to function needs a coherent, inclusive sense of being. And that can only be done by stories. And when we leave people out, when we leave out vast swaths, we are setting ourselves for political problems and social unrest and inequity. Uh, and so that's why i think that it's factless and stupid
0: absolutely i mean certainly from the bookshop perspective you can really see it when a book comes out from a you know a particular experience you know across the spectrum as it were that you were discussing from you know race disability um sexuality and when something like that comes out you really witness a almost a hunger is a good word to describe it because you know suddenly someone is seeing themselves, their experience reflected in these stories. And it's wonderful to see. So I completely agree. You know, there's this, um, well, not idea, but you know, you will sometimes hear people say the defence of that it's to do with what's commercially viable, which is um, a term that makes me shudder slightly. But you're absolutely right in saying that that's not the case at all and that there is a great desire for these stories out there.
1: It reminds me of that wonderful line from Silence of the Lamps. You desire what you see. If the books aren't available, how will people know that we want to read them? Yes. And I think that's why it's important. So when I started looking at it, we were considering how to go about it. And then something really brilliant happened. And Brilliant in the sense that the statistics that it exposed were terrible. And the report itself was terrible. The Arts Council writing the future. That came out in 2015. And it laid out very starkly how the publishing industry was failing at multiple levels. Yeah, And that kind of became the point where I said, well, it has to be done now. I reached out to various people and then Nikesh and I started talking. And then I was actually at Polari Prize, again, an intervention for on a different scale at an event. And we started talking about You know, how they had started with the uh, as an intervention, as a kind of encouragement for publishers to do more queer books. And I was sort of talking about the report. And then somebody who was on the table who works in the city said, How much money would it take? And we kind of, you know, various people were there and we basically did this kind of back of a napkin um, or just a napkin (laughs) kind of figures and said, Yeah, I think we could run it on just like, A prize pot a party and then we'll figure out the rest yeah um and then this person said okay well come back to me with a little bit more and then we'll see how it goes and uh lo and behold we a week later we had funding which was a price check and money for a party so for two thousand pounds that's what we started with and we had a commitment they would pay for it for three years and uh, that's how we started and we've been scrambling we are still run entirely by volunteers we are primarily virtual, so we do not have an office space. We have no. Okay, yeah. We have almost next to none overheads. I I know we have this outsized image, um, often beyond the prize itself. But we are really not both sort of running on chewing gum and shoelace. Yes. But I think it makes us flexible. It means that we are able to do things. We yeah. Talk to people are only. We're very clear that our primary accountability is to our community of fellow writers of colour. So as long as we are accountable to them and we're doing it right, then we're good. When we get that wrong, that's who we have to make sure that we make reparations and restitution to. So far, it's gone well.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, because one of the things I was going to go on to next, actually, is you were saying that Things are still in the early days, as it were, you know, there's still development to be made. But from an outside perspective, the positive impact outweighs the nature of how the prize is at the moment. Uh, you know, would you agree with that? Would you say that the response that you've had that for a small organisation, that the punch that it packs is is much greater?
1: We are definitely punching above our weight and we have done. A large part of it is, again, because of the community of writers, the the, yeah. the writers who supported us, people who judge for us, people who talk about it, who recommend books, who help us work out partnerships. So there's, there's a real sense of community. And I think that's why we are able to do the kinds of things we do. It's not because somehow we're able to do something extraordinarily special by just being us or individuals. It's really a community effort.
0: Yeah, I feel from the conversation we've had, you talking about your childhood and living in a house with lots of people sort of coming and going, and the talk of libraries, and now the prize, a big word that sticks out for me is community. And it seems the greatest resource that anything can have, but particularly the Javik Prize is that community.
1: I agree. I always go back to something that one of my little cousins, he's much younger than me, said years ago. And he was going into that moment where he was getting involved with watching action movies. And uh, yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know, the 12 year old boy movies with lots of content and sort of car chases and so on. And at one point, I remember him turning around to me. I was reading and looking at this thing going, you know, I just the explosions are are driving me a little bit (laughs) crazy. And he looked around at me. He said, you know, I always wonder who he's fighting for. Why bother saving the world? And I just remember just going, you know, here is a kid sitting in a house in Delhi at that point, asking a question that is crucial. Why bother saving the world when you really have nobody you love around you? And I think that is something really profound that I hadn't thought of in terms of how we structure our stories. When we structure our stories to be about that lone hero who's out to save the world, the question is why? Why bother? What would you get out of it? And I think for me, there is no sense of lone heroes. You know, it's the Toni Morrison line. We don't need solitary heroes. We need a movement. And that can't happen unless you centre a community rather than individuals.
0: What would you say then, with that in mind, we've talked about the origins of the Jalloc Prize. You know, what are your hopes or, or your desires for the Jalloc Prize in the future?
1: you know, it's really funny because I have said this from day one. My hope for the Jalloc Prize is that I can shut it down. Okay. Because the day we can do that, it means we are not needed. It takes an enormous amount of time, energy, Everything from all of us who are involved. Nikesh stepped back after the first two years because he had started the Good Literary Agency and there, were go- there was eventually going to be a conflict of interest, you know, with him submitting, yes. not only, you know, wanting to submit his book. And that happens with also a lot of our judges who've actually come on board choosing to judge the prize rather than having their own books considered. Yes. Uh, that's a standard, that's a constant annual thing where judges, yep. and it's it's an extraordinarily generous thing for, for yes. writers to do. But of course, he also had started this incredible agency and he would be submitting, hopefully, you know, that was the idea, he would be submitting his writers. So he stepped back, but we constantly went back and said, really you know we just want to be writers all we want yes. to do is to be able to write books and read books and stay in our heads mostly so for me and i think for most of us who are involved with any kind of change making work i'm happy for things to change so i can shut it down and go off and read and write
0: yes and crack on with this expansive <laughs> book that you you mentioned earlier
1: yes i mean i have multiple writing projects that I never seem to have enough time for. So I would love to do that. That would be wonderful. But I also know that we have a long road
0: ahead. Yes. But certainly I will say from our perspective here in the bookshop, these prizes help inform people. They sort of can guide people through reading experiences, you know, in the way a bookseller will point out books that they think are particular customer or individual will enjoy you know prizes as well are a great way of drawing people's attention and certainly in obviously these past two years we've been um, a Janet prize champion but you know we are really seeing that in terms of it catching people's eye and it becoming a a, a prize that is known to a a wider audience so those initial aims you know they're being met it's just that as you say the longer road to go Yeah.
1: And, you know, I mean, and I think it's been great since we partnered with National Book Tokens because we were very clear just as the pandemic started that a huge part of our community are the independent bookshops. And the lockdowns were really tough, you know, and so when the partnership kicked off, we had all these ideas of how to reach out and how to not just bring books to people, but also to support independent bookshops that work in communities and give back to communities. And it's so, so important.
0: Absolutely. I think that's brought us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Sunny, for joining us.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting. And I can't thank you enough for being one of our bookshop champions two years in a row. No, not at all. And we're looking forward to the awards ceremony. I mean, I have no idea how the judges are going to pick. It, it just seems like an impossible task because the shortlist is so wonderful.
0: Oh, I've always thought, you know, well, I don't know what future would have me judging anything, but particularly with this prize, it must be such a hard decision to make when you've narrowed it down to such an an excellent selection of books. Obviously, we are slightly biased, at mostly books, and for the um, the children's and YA prize as we're um, championing We're Going to Find the Monster by Marilee Blackman and Dapo Adeola. You know, we're secretly gunning for that one. We would love to see them win. We've met Dapo several times and, you know, we're huge fans, Um, but it is just overall a great selection of books. Thank you so much, Sunny. Thank you.
1: All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently
0: it helps people find us.